plan. Right, well, good morning. Um, uh, my name is Rick Kite, uh, director of the D.B. Reinhardt Institute for Ethics and Leadership at Viterbo University, and we're trying something new, a series of, of conversations via Zoom on, um, on ethical issues that are facing our communities at this, at this point in time. And uh, our guest this morning is Dr. Jeff Thompson, who's a longtime pediatrician and former CEO of Gunderson Health Systems based here in La Crosse. And we're going to be talking about the issue of uh, ventilators and uh, ventilator allocation. Um, just this past week, the um, uh, ventilator, ventilator Allocation Advisory Workgroup out of the U University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, came out with a set of guidelines for the state. And, um, uh, and this, is, this is something that uh, many states are doing, is coming out with these guidelines because of course, there's a real shortage of ventilators, especially in places where COVID-19 is, is uh, reaching its peak in places like New York City. Um, uh, so I wanted to start out uh, just asking you, Dr. Thompson, could you explain to us what a ventilator is and, and why it's so important at this point in time? Sure. Um, a ventilator is a very important piece of equipment for ill patients. It is basically an air pump. When the patient's either too weak to pull air into their lungs, or the lungs are so sick that, that the air cannot get in, a ventilator, with the help of a small, usually plastic tube that goes down through the windpipe, an endotracheal tube, the ventilator pushes air into the lungs so that you get that exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. So it's a mechanical assistance for you to breathe when either you're too weak or too sick or both to get the air in and the air out that needs to happen to stay alive. And um, most hospitals don't have a lot of ventilators, I would guess, especially smaller hospitals uh, might just have a couple. Is that right? Major, major hospitals in big cities would, would have more, but it's, it's not a commonly used or I mean, it's not, it's not used all the time, that, that piece of equipment. Exactly. Uh, in a hospital that might have 50 beds, they might have two or three or five or seven. Um, in a hospital with 300, you might have 300 beds. The ICU might only be 25 or 30 uh, beds for adults. Um, it could be 50, but still, it, there's far more beds without a ventilator than those are with. They're really reserved for the sickest of patients. The, the operating room, of course, has some special ventilators, but that's for short term while people are under anesthesia. Um, the intensive care unit for babies has ventilators, but they're remarkably different than those for adults, and pediatrics is some mix. So, it's, so it, is, it is not as common at all as hospital beds or or, or the availability of, of rooms in a, in a hospital, much, much less more common. Well, one of the, the um, I guess, issues that I, I've been noticing that people talking about with this uh, ventilator allocation guidelines in many states is the, the worry about the rationing of healthcare and healthcare services. And so, um, of, of course, Rationing, to my understanding, is something that we do routinely in healthcare, uh, right? And I want to 
kind of get your kind of um, uh, insight into this as somebody who's been a healthcare administrator. Um, um, so rationing isn't something that we do only in crisis, right? Isn't it? Isn't it something that we do all the time when we're making decision about who gets what? Well, yes. Uh, unfortunately, rationing in this country um, will will cause a lot of people to stand up and pound their chests and say, oh, well, we would never do such a thing in the United States. But of course, rationing, as you point out, is, is commonplace. We, we ration uh, less transparently and less openly, uh, but ration nonetheless. Um, we have uh, a more transparent system, for example, in the organ procurement for donated organs. Um, there is a tiering of how sick the patient is, and that will result in where they get ranked along the line. And some people much farther down who don't seem as stable or they have many other conditions, they might not get ranked up there, might not get it. But, but the big rationing in this country has to do with the fact that we have limited access for people who are poor. We have um, uh, insurance that's not available to everybody. Um, and we have giant copays that affect people's decisions. Every study that's been done shows people choose not to get care here in a way um, that's much more common than in other uh, developed countries because of their concern about the cost, and that, that happens on a regular basis. So we, in fact, ration care away from the poor and, and towards the well-off every single day in this country. So I guess maybe what's unusual is that we're having a public discussion right now about rationing um, in a time where uh, all of us are thinking it, it might be relevant to to ourselves or our families um, um, in the in the near future, right? Oh yes, this gets poignant pretty quickly when you start saying you have a a needed intervention that without it the person dies, and you quickly are running out of those resources, then you say. Under what criteria should we decide? Who makes up the criteria? Who decides how you follow the criteria? It, it gets sticky really quickly. Is it young people who have many years to live or old people who have contributed more to society? Um, is it people with other conditions that should not be allowed to be on the ventilator? Or should it just be who we think most likely is gonna survive the ICU stay or another year, or is it five years or 20 years? Uh, the, uh, it gets uh, pretty messy pretty quickly. And, and I mean, if, if you have people on ventilators and then other people show up that need them who are more likely to be helped, you take some people off. I mean, th this is, it gets very complicated, um, very difficult. And, and this is why people like the folks uh, from UW, uh, other people around the country, articles published in the New England Journal, have been trying to address this as a more thoughtful, organized, and transparent process so that the public will have at least some feeling of engagement and fairness, even though 
there will be no system set up that everybody, especially in the heat of a dying relative, will feel is fair. But, and that's interesting, you mentioned transparency, that um, that's in fact one of the recommendations that this working group has made is that uh, these guidelines, first of all, should be transparent um, and that they should uh, uh, solicit community input about them. Um, and, and, and I think that many of the recommendations are, are not really um, um, are controversial at all. Um, however, there, there are a few things that I, I found kind of interesting. I'd just like to get your, uh, your feedback on. One is that there should be um, a, a triage team, um, either a triage officer or a triage team that is making these kind of immediate in-place decisions within each healthcare setting. Um, could you explain to us how that works? What, what actually goes on uh, when these decisions get made on the ground? Yeah, the, the, the push for a triage team is in the UW uh, uh, publications. It's in a number of other pretty common publications. The, the thinking is, is that there is so much stress by the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists in the emergency department, in the intensive care units, that to have to pull a patient off a ventilator or decide between these two patients who they are working very hard to take care of is, is, a, is a burden that should be pulled back a notch for a couple reasons. One is very stressful on these folks. Two, we know that in the middle of all these stressful situations, from other studies on following protocols and that individual clinicians have great variability in how closely they follow the guidelines. Some out of personal choice, some out of fatigue, some, there's a lot of reasons. If you're gonna build public trust, if you're gonna be as fair as you can to the broadest number of people, we have to have a consistent, thoughtful, and as we mentioned, transparent system to say this is what healthcare is going to look like um, for rich and poor, for black and white, um, for every religious denomination. This is not about, it is about these criteria and, and these criteria alone and pulling it back a notch from the frontline providers to the triage, a, a triage team made up of clinicians, a nurse, um, uh, someone that uh, allocates resources, maybe an administrative person, that, so that they can understand the, the bigger picture and, and try and understand how the most people can be helped with the limited resources. And limited resources is something that people in the United States are not used to hearing. I mean, they, it, it's, of course, been limited for many, many people part of our uh, communities. I mean, why, why do African-American women have a five-time mortality uh, in childbirth than white women? I mean, it's, it's because of limited access. It's a, it's a lot of things. But we, we, we have a problem with thinking about limited resources. Now, I, I just have to interject here that 
one of the antidotes to this crisis of ventilators is being farther upstream stream and have better preparation to have long-term thinking rather than short-term thinking to jump around in the midst of the crisis is heroic it's far better to have planning far ahead of time to have systems set up to have better testing to have um, better systems of tracking patients who are positive and to have structures for both that as well as how we treat, isolate, and, and follow up on people. That is hard work. It's not as glorious work, but it is far better to do it that way than wait until we have a resource crisis and then have to be divvying up ventilators. I'm, I'm not saying everything can be prevented, but I can say a lot of things could be prevented, and we have a lot of models around the world where people prevented most of this limited resource allocation crisis. So that's a, that brings up an interesting point because I've noticed lots of times we, we talk about ethical decision-making as, uh, as controversial decisions that are made in response to some urgent situation. Um, but we tend not to think of ethical decision-making as something that goes into um, making sure that the crisis does not happen in the first place. So we don't think of preventive decision-making as ethical decision-making. It seems to me it should be because uh, oftentimes that's much more effective. I was just looking at some of the statistics on, um, on the, the effectiveness of ventilators and um, um, it seems to range anywhere from like uh, Italy. I think the effectiveness was around 15% of uh, people who went on ventilators uh, were able to come off of them and recover. In New York City, Governor Cuomo said it, their experience is around 20%. Maybe in a best case scenario, it's, it's closer to 30. Uh, these are people that, with COVID-19. Right. Um, so even we're not, we're not talking about something that is really effective as a, as a cure for uh, COVID-19. It's really a last, last ditch effort. Yeah, that's true. And, and uh, the, the information is, of course, all over. It depends on the age of the population. It depends on comorbidities. It depends on how early you get them in. Again, if you have a, a, a system that people are scared to come in to get tested, they're afraid of what might happen to all those kinds of things, you get people later and later and later, um, and, and, and more of them die. And some patients, some patients it, it isn't there's just nothing you're going to be able to do to fix it, and they're going to die no matter what. Um, I believe as we get better testing, as we have um, better systems of care, we get people earlier that the survival rate will go up. Um, uh, but your point is still uh, well taken. Once, once you get to that point, this is, um, this is a very bad disease that causes enormous damage to the lungs and beyond the lungs, there's heart and other things that show up. And so this is, it is a big problem and it is uh, very scary uh, for families. And, and again, one of the big social implications of this, it is, it is, you know, I spent 35 years in newborn and pediatric intensive cares. It is very scary for families to have a patient in an intensive care unit, ventilators, monitors, all that stuff. You know, we, we have 
family rooms next door. We had big chairs where the family would stay in the room um, with the patient. All that not being there is not only terrible for the families to, to see their loved one go on a respirator and know more likely they're going to die than not, and more likely family members aren't going to be close, or at least a very limited number of them. It's also better for the patient to have family there. I mean, you, you can, you, the studies have been shown, you have, a, you have family members there that talk to the patients, that help them, encourage them, do those things. It is absolutely clear that the patients do better. So, so it's, there, there are multiple layers of struggles here, and it is, it is I, I feel very badly for, for the patients, for the families, and of course, the healthcare workers who are doing great work trying to take care of patients and take care of themselves because they have families, they have, they have children, they have parents they take care of. I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty tough. Um, one final question I wanted, wanted to ask you. Um, uh, in the state of Wisconsin, I was just checking the Wisconsin Hospital Association dashboard. Um, uh, Wisconsin hospitals today have 1,246 ventilators, so that's the state supply. Today, 351 of them are in use. Um, so a little, um, around a third or so of, of the ventilators are in use. Um, uh, Governor of New York uh, has been requesting that, that hospitals that have extra ventilators send them to New York. Um, yes. At, when, when does that become the right thing to do? If you've got, you've got, say, 30 ventilators in a local hospital that aren't being used at the time, but you don't, you don't know what the future holds in the next two weeks, so, um, uh, how do you make a decision whether to send them to a needed place and you get them back? Yeah, sorry, we're out of time. I'll have to go. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's that's a terrific question, and that is a very hard point because one of the things that healthcare has been noteworthy about over the years, it, as, as good as any industry I've ever seen, uh, is that they share information, they share equipment, they share people. They even with fierce competitors across towns, across state lines, we we share all kinds of things that in other businesses would be considered trade secrets you never do. We, we share that information. We've, we've sent equipment all over the place. We've sent donated organs to all over the states. We, people, it's just the way it's done in healthcare. This is so problematic for a couple reasons. One, it's very difficult to predict when your surge might come. We, we know it's not all at the same time. I mean, uh, New York is, hopefully coming down, but Massachusetts is still in trouble and Louisiana is in a lot of trouble and one of the hottest spots in the country just showed up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, so so it, is, it is important to, to, to realize that you don't have all that information, that you want to help. Um, you don't know if, it can, if, if you send them, you can get them back because of shipping and a lot of things. And, and frankly, you're nervous because a lot of your other supplies, uh, masks and gowns and things that you ordered, the company said you're getting, all of a sudden the FEMA or some other part of the federal government takes them. And, and you don't get 
what you know you you would count it as having. The the third the third piece, another piece here is that something that healthcare has learned from business over the years to try and manage costs is just in time supplies. So rather than having warehouses full of lots of lots of supplies, many healthcare organizations have moved to smaller and smaller stockpiles so that they don't have all their money tied up in supplies because the shipping routes have been good, the manufacturers have been good, the, the consistency of our supply chain has been so strong that people have not had warehouses and warehouses full of supplies, whether it's ventilators or masks or gowns or medicines or other things. So you start this with probably a smaller stockpiles than we would have had 10 or 15 years ago. We start with an unpredictable disease with variable peaks and, and with a very transparent system of you have an obligation, you've taken on as a CEO on the board for your, the health and well-being of your community. Well, if you give away half your ventilators and then you need them, that's a big problem. So, so what do I think? I think you have to sit, carefully look all this over, and as a state, as a region, say, how are we doing? Because it's more than just the state. I mean, we, if, 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 you know, Mayo and Gunderson have competed for a long time, if Rochester said we are in desperate need, we would help them. And if we said we're in desperate need, they would help us. I, I just know that that's the way we've behaved all the way along. Um, and, and I think what you do is you come up with a, a, a modified assistance. And we say, look, we, we, if we have 600 or 800 extra, we, we cannot ship all of them. But if we can ship 150 out of the state, so everybody gives up a small portion, and then Minnesota helps out, and Southern Illinois helps out, and it, it, Michigan, northern, upper Michigan helps out, then, then I think you can come up with enough to help them through it. Because we certainly wouldn't want to be in their shoes, and so we want to help them get through it if we can. So that's, kind of, that's a pretty long answer. That's a very hard problem. Well, thank you. I thank you for addressing that, because I think um, we're, we're focusing all this attention on, on a, a few really crucial decisions about ventilator allocation where you decide between one person and the next uh, but but the bigger decisions are these resource uh, kind of distribution questions because if if we have more ventilators then you make fewer of these um, immediate decisions weighing the life of one person against the next and it seems to me that that's where the the bigger burden of ethical decision making comes in is in these these larger kind of resource allocation uh, decisions. Oh, it's really true. And it, and it starts early on with a mindset. Do we have a mindset of um, collaborative efforts to make it work for the best of the most people? Or do we have a scarcity mindset that we're going to hunker down, protect our own? And, and I would argue that most healthcare institutions, most uh, organizations, civic organizations, their foundation is built far more on the collaborative we're gonna figure out how to broadly help the most people, regardless of what county or city or state they live in, where, where they came from, what their religious aspects, what their race. I mean, you can, you, you have to broaden, I would argue, 
you broaden the tent. You don't look at it from scarcity. You look at it from a collaborative effort to do the most good for the most people. And you, you have a broad tent to help you make decisions on that. No one person makes these decisions. And so we have a broad tent. We do that and we look at it from, we have enormous resources. And if we distribute them well, in a thoughtful fashion, transparently and, and openly, then we should be able to do the most good for the most people. Well, thank you very much I, that we're running out of time here. And so uh, I think that's a good note to conclude on. And um, thank you for uh, shedding some light on what's uh, becoming a, I, I think, pretty controversial topic, but also a very complex one. So uh, thank you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, anytime. Nice to talk with you. It is, it is a very difficult problem, and, and I appreciate that you're willing to, uh, to take a little time to talk about it. So thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. See you. Bye.